0: Great. Thank you for being here. How many of you were here last week, but you really don't remember being here last week? Okay, I know. There's always some in the crowd. Uh, well, welcome. I want to remind you before I go any further tonight that uh, at the end of each uh, session, you can pick up a session of tonight's talk. Downstairs we'll have CDs of tonight's talk and last week's talk. And so I want to welcome you to, to take advantage of that. Um, Tonight's topic is, Who is Jesus? Um, Interesting conversation that we're going to get into. First, just, you know, like us on Facebook if if you want. I really don't care. Um, But (laughs) if you want to do that, you can. But who is Jesus tonight? But before we get into the topic of who is Jesus, we're going to talk about a much less important personality, and that is, Who am I? Who is Frank Loria? And that's who I am. I'm Frank Loria. Have had the privilege of sharing the presentation duties with Keith Collins, uh, our pastor for, well, this is our 30th Alpha. Our very first Alpha was one week after 9 11. It was our first Alpha. And so we do this twice a year, and we're very, very happy to have you here. Uh, I am not on staff at Lakeview Christian Center. That's going to become very apparent in just a few moments. Um, I don't scream and point like most preachers do. Uh, I own a, I own a small employment firm on the other side of the canal there and uh, just have had the privilege of of getting to do it this with Keith and so uh, that's that's where that's where I spend my days um, and my wife and I've been at Lakeview for 37 years just th- this church for 37 years and before I wouldn't clap really that's not good <laughs> unless that's for pity that would be fine um, but I want it before I go any further. I want to introduce to you my better three quarters on her worst day. Annette, would you please stand? Let everybody see how incredible you are. Uh, Annette is my wife of 38 years, seven months, two days, uh, two days. I think two days. Yeah, 20. Yeah, that's. How I think it works something like that. And uh, I could be wrong. And it's been about. About nine hours and thirty-one minutes. Uh, we have three grown children who are married to three other grown children, uh, and they are uh, and they have blessed us with uh, ten grandchildren, and our eleventh is sitting inside of my daughter in the back of the room, wherever she is, Abby. So, very excited about that. Both Annette and I are from New Orleans. And that went to Dominican High School. I went to a little bitty military school called New Orleans Academy. I, I graduated in the top 18 uh, out of 21 in my class. Um, uh, I, I chose not to get a college degree, so I attended Louisiana State University. Um, you have to think about that. Thank you. Um, so, but it was, it was there I joined the wildest fraternity on campus. I was, I was, how many of you familiar with Louisiana State University? You went to school there? Know the bars? Did, uh, know the bars, yeah. Um, but it was I was a member of the Deke fraternity. I was a member of the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity. And actually, it was there where um, I, I first met my wife. Uh, she was swinging from a chandelier. And, uh, and that's really where she first caught my eye with her heel. And, uh, and then her knee on my shoulder, and down we went, and she has been... All over me ever since. <laughs> she actually has a scar on her knee to prove it. You may want to ask her to show them her the scar. Well, the Alpha Course has been around. Keith, told you a little bit about this last. The Alpha Course has been around for over thirty-four years. It's all over the world. Over twenty million people have attended the Alpha Course. Uh, it's been, it's, it, it's been about one hundred forty countries and about one hundred and fifteen or so different languages. Uh, so at Lakeview, as I said, this is our 30th Alpha. We've, we've had the chance of hosting over 6,000 people in the 30 Alphas that we've attended. So, so maybe you're still asking, even after Keith last week, what is Alpha? Well, Alpha is, is an introduction to the Christian faith, which may sound kind of strange to have something that's called an introduction to the Christian faith in the United States of America. I mean, who doesn't know what Christianity is? Well... I think as we go more deeply into the Alpha course, we're going to find out some things that are going to surprise us. We're going to find that Christianity is much more than maybe many of us thought. And so what is Alpha not? Let me tell you what Alpha is not. Alpha is not an indoctrination to what this church teaches. We we don't disagree with what Alpha teaches, but this is not an opportunity to get you to come and believe everything that we believe. Uh, This is not a membership drive. This is not about you coming to Lakeview Christian Center. This is not about you changing your denomination or the church you attend. This is not about some way to get in your pocket. Okay. Now, I don't expect you to believe a word I just said because there's really no reason. You don't know who the heck this Italian dude is that's standing in front of you. I mean, the Marcellos happen to be my uh, relatives, and we do have a way of encouraging people to give. Um, but, But Alpha is an opportunity for you to just Come and relax and think about why you believe what you believe. And so Alpha is an opportunity to come and and see what the Bible actually says. Because what I have found is most of us have an incomplete or incorrect understanding of what Christianity is. We really don't know what the Bible says. So so let me ask you a question. We start with a little audience participation. Um, How many of you grew up as a course of your life, as a habit of your life, reading or studying or critically examining the teachings of the Bible. Just raise your hand. No, no, really, don't be shy. Would you just... One, two, three, four, five, six. Do I hear seven? Seven. Do I hear eight? Eight. I get, okay, so I got about nine hands here. Now, there's probably about 180 people in this room tonight. So my expectations are extremely high. The reason my expectations are extremely high is because I've never seen somebody come through the Alpha course that hasn't finished the course saying, I've learned more in 10 weeks than I did my previous X numbers of years in life. Some people have told me I learned more in one week about the Bible than I have my entire life. And so the opportunity that we have here is to, to form an informed decision to have an informed faith as to what do we believe? What do you believe? Well, there's a great opportunity for, to come and talk about that. See, because when we talk about faith, typically when we talk about faith, we're thinking about religion, right? Well, I want to encourage, if, if I were to ask you the question tonight, are you a man of faith? Or are you a woman of faith? Do you have faith? And some of you say, well, you know, I'm not really a religious person. I'm not sure if I have faith. Um, but faith is something you and I exercise Every day, faith is not something that's necessarily religious. I mean, for example, did any of you drive here tonight? Most of you drove here tonight, right? Right, okay, that, you, didn't, you didn't have to raise your hand. Uh, but, um, so, but when you got in your car, did you know it was going to start? In faith, you believed it was going to start. In faith, you believed when, when you hit the brakes, the brakes would work. When the light turned green, you would be able to go, and that the other light would turn red, and they would stop. Right? All that was faith. It wasn't blind faith. You've done it 100 times. I did go in the parking lot and saw some of your cars, and some of you exuded a lot of faith in getting here tonight. So, um, so thank you for your faith. But uh, so we exude faith when we anybody fly, okay? Right? That that's faith, right? What if what if you flew Air Chance, okay? Air Chance, you know their slogan: "Fly securely with our seventy-five percent safety record." You getting on that plane? I'm not getting on that plane. Um, But but what about this plane? Flight 1549, flying out of New York to Charlotte on a January, I think, 15th day. The temperature is 21 degrees with a 12-degree chill factor. And U.S. Airways, at no extra charge allowed people to be on the plane and do a slide into the Hudson River. They did foot washings. You could, get on the, you could get out on the wings, and you could get your feet washed. Now, did anybody on that plane expect to end up in the Hudson and not in Charlotte, North Carolina? They put 100% of their being into an object that well, it wasn't the object that was necessarily unreliable, but a bunch of birds that decided to fly where they were going to fly. And it ended up these guys miraculously in the drink. But you get on an airplane in faith. Did, did you guys enjoy dinner tonight? Did you enjoy your dinner again? I hope you enjoyed your dinner. Did, did you meet the chef? You, you, you didn't meet the chef? It was not a good day for the chef. He was not a happy man today. But I watched you guys. You didn't know who the chef was. You have no idea. But you just ate. You just came into the buffet line. You ate. You went back to your table. You came back and you ate some more. And you came back and you ate some more. Okay, well, what if the, what if, what if the chef decided, you know what, I'm sick to death of it, feeding these people and I'm just going to make dinner a little bit more interesting. And you get food poisoning and you have to go to the doctor. Well, would you want to go to this doctor? All right? Some of you know who that is. See, you go to a doctor in faith, don't you? See, not, not blind faith, but you go to a doctor in faith. You, you want to see the diplomas on the wall. You're hoping he's practicing at auctioner and not in a trailer park on Airline Highway, right? Isn't that true? Why? Because we use our brains when we think about things, whether we're aware of it or not. We are faith-filled people. You sit in this building in faith. You didn't meet the architect or the engineers. Everything about everything we do in life is is faith. How about marriage? That's faith. Right? That's faith. Right? You know that death do us part, sickness, health, better, worse, richer, poorer? You know that? That half of us don't hang on to? Okay? Faith, right? Was it blind faith? Some of you sure was. but it's not supposed to be blind faith. So you look at the evidence, you examine the evidence, and you make a decision. Uh, so, so wouldn't you wouldn't agree that the more faith, the more evidence you have, the more rational your faith position? Well, I mean, we would agree. If you just throw religion out the window right now, you would agree, I'm sure, that the more evidence you have, the more rational your faith. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. So um, I've, I've sat on a jury. Have you ever sat on a jury? It's fun to sit on a jury. I know uh, Ronald just got off of uh, jury duty. I sat on a jury. And when, the, and when the judge charges the jury, he doesn't say, he says, I, 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 I charge you to come to a decision beyond a shadow of a doubt. He doesn't say that, does he? He says beyond a what? Beyond a reasonable doubt. You take the evidence... And you determine, because you can't necessarily go and reproduce what took place, you take the evidence and you determine whether or not the, the, the party is guilty or innocent, whether they did what was said to be done or did not. And so, as we talk about faith, I want to encourage us here to keep, as we talk about religion, I want to encourage us to keep our mind engaged. I want to encourage us to think about these things. Because if you're anything like me, you really hadn't given much real critical thought to religion. Not that you never think about it, but not real, real critical thought. So let me ask you a question. Another question. You're going to work off your dinner here with, with all this. Uh, how many of you believe there's something for you on the other side of your last heartbeat that's going to last forever? Just go ahead and raise your hands. Something on the other side of your last heartbeat is gonna last forever. I think it's good. Can okay, just look around. Keep, keep just up for a little bit more. Okay, so a moment ago I had seven hands up. This time I have a few more than seven hands up. Probably ninety plus percent of you in the room believe that. So let me just so so based on that, let me well, let me just share one more thing with you here. I want to share with you a scripture from the Bible. And by the way, as we go through the Bible, I'm not asking you to believe it. See, most of us don't even know what's in it. So we don't know whether what we believe or not. We've heard some stories about fish and things like that. But we really don't know the essence of what's in the Scripture. Most of us don't. As I understand, maybe seven or eight of us do. But this is what King David wrote as it pertained to life and the length of life. He says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered. How fleeting my life is! You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. Okay, each of us is but a breath. And so, if if I've, 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 let's just say I've got 80 years. Okay, that's 16, 32, 48. What is, is that right? 48, uh, 16, is 64. Okay, I, I'm about I'm about three and a half fingers done. That's me. I got I got about a, a half a finger and a thumb left. Say, how quickly did I get to sixty years? Like it was sixty minutes. Right? And so if life is that quick, I'm experiencing the quickness of that life. Matter of fact, let me just because I want us, I want us to really think about this. I'm going to hey, Zoe, are you here, Zoe? Where's Zoe? So you went all the way to the back? Okay, come on, Nathan, put your, put your, Gabe, come on, I need you. Nathan, this is my grandson, Nathan, I am so proud to have him here. I hope I don't humiliate him tonight, which I'm already trying to do. Okay, Nate, can you hold this up? This represents, don't cover it so people can see it. Physical life, very good. Now, Nate, you got the hard part because Gabe is somewhat crippled here. Um, Gabe, take that and run that all the way across there. Okay, Nate, you're going to have to hold this up and hold it right at the end there of physical life. Okay, Gabe, stop and, and give this thing some life. Take the belly out of it. Okay, keep going. You're doing, you're doing great. Okay, so don't... All right, so look, here's physical life. Just a hand breath, right? Just a hand breath quickly. You, you, by the way, you don't know where you are in the continuum. Let's say this is the day you were born, but you have no idea when you're going to draw your last breath, do you? None of us know that. All right, so, so let's just say we're, we, we, the truth. We're somewhere along the continuum. Are your arms getting tired? No. Great, okay. Uh, so, but there's going to come a point where the heart, which has been beating all your life, is going to stop. And if you're in the hospital, there's going to be that noise, right? Right? You're going to code. You're going to be dead. You're going to be no more. And then if what the Bible says is true and what most of you believe is true, there's going to be something on the other side of your last heart that's going to last forever. Right? That's what you said, that you just raised your hand. I took a picture. I saw your hands. So the, the issue is this. Why is it then, if that's going to last for so long, do you and I spend more time critically examining, more time critically examining where we're going to vacation for two weeks? Why don't we spend more time figuring out What's the best fantasy football team I can pick for the, for the season? Why are we freaking out over whether or not we selected the best cell phone policy? Right? Now, look, there's important things. What well, house you're going to buy, your career, all these other things. But they're going to last for a very, very short period of time. See, C.S. Lewis, who was an, was an atheist, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, said, if you focus on the line, let's call this the line, You'll get this right. You'll get this thrown in. But if you focus on this, you will lose both, is what Lewis, who as I said was a, a, a strong atheist who became a follower of Jesus Christ. So as we're talking about this, we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about religion, we're talking about God, we're talking about your life and you're on the other side of this and you're on this side of this and mine as well. Let's give some thought to this. Let's critically examine Not just what we believed our whole lives just because we believed it, but why do I believe what I believe? All right? You guys did so incredibly well. Thank you, Nathan. Let's give these guys a big hand. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, Gabe. So, Page 12, we're on page 12. Finally, we're getting into the manual. Who is Jesus? Now, again, for we Americans, that may seem like a dumb question. But let me just tell you a little bit about myself. I I believed in a Jesus that did not exist. I created a fictitious character. I, I was going to church. I was praying. But I did not know who the Jesus of the Bible was. But when I went to LSU, I met some guys at the Deke Fraternity. There was a qualitative difference in their life, and I came to understand and find out who Jesus was. I surrendered control of my life to him. My life was going this way, and I turned my life that way. And I said, God, if you want this life, it's yours. I surrendered my life to him, and I accepted his love for me and what the Bible said he did for me. So about 40 years ago, I became a follower of Jesus Christ, and he changed my life completely, and he continues to do that. But it's interesting that when, when I did that, I began to study to find out, is there really reason for faith? Is, is, there, is there an intellectual uh, science behind what I believe? And so I started to ask if there was reason to consider what I, what I had just believed. Was a reason to consider faith in the person and the claims of Jesus Christ? Well, on page 12, we see this here. He existed. You know, no critically thinking, rational, unbiased historian believes that the Jesus Christ of the Bible was a fable. And all other historical figures are brought into question then. Caesar, Plato, etc., because there is so much evidence to support Jesus. They're extra-biblical. So outside of the Bible, historians, Josephus, Suetonius, Pliny, the disciples, not necessarily the apostles, but the disciples of Jesus. We have recordings of each of them talking about Jesus. Uh, Cornelius Tacitus was a, was a Roman historian. This is what Tacitus had to write concerning the burning of Rome. He says, consequently... To get rid of the report that he had burned Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. The extreme penalty was crucifixion. During the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontus Pilatus, or as we know, Pontius Pilate. And so we see here from someone that was certainly not a friend, quite the antagonist of Christianity, we see historical account of the person of Jesus. But you know, one of the good questions, a good question we would have is, how do we know the New Testament hasn't been changed over the years? How do we know that what you and I are reading is actually what was written thousands of years ago, a couple thousand years ago? And there. The fascinating thing is, there's tremendous evidence to support this. In week, in week five, so just three weeks from tonight, we'll be we'll be looking at that a little bit more closely. But I want I want you to take your manual, if you will, if you've got it in your hand. Um, I want you to write some things down, if you will. We're going to talk about right now the science of textual criticism. You may be interested. I think everybody's got a pen. You may want to write that down. The science, just the word textual criticism. All right, that's you can write write that at the bottom of page 13. That should be fine. That should give you some room here. Within the science of textual criticism, there are three tests that these scientists, that these paleographers—that's what they're called—people that study this stuff are called paleographers. Okay, there are three parts to the to the bibliographical test. One, you may want to write this down, is the quantity of manuscripts. Right, the quantity. How many? Copies, how many hand, handwritten manuscript, handwritten copies do we have? So the quantity of manuscripts. Secondly, the quality of the manuscripts. First, quantity. Second, quality of the manuscripts. The quality does not mean what, how good a shape they're in necessarily. The quality means if you have 10 manuscripts and you're comparing number 10 manuscript to number 1 manuscript to number 5 manuscript to number 3 to number 8 manuscript... Are they all basically saying the same thing, or are they conflicting? Are they complementing, or are they conflicting? If they're complementing, there's good quality. If they're contradicting, there is poor quality to the validity of the document, the original autograph. And then the third one is time span. So quantity, quality, and the time span between the first copy that we see and the original autograph. When the when the author wrote, and when we see the first copy, because those original documents just, you know, they didn't they had no ability to hermetically seal something like we can today. Those documents, many of those documents drew, uh, dried up and blew away. So let's take a look at some of these some of these things, and because it's it's history. Hear me. It's history that speaks loudly about the person of Jesus Christ. Beyond religion, thinking historically about the person of Jesus Christ. So let's just let's look at three of these here on page thirteen. So we have here Thucydides. I have to put my glasses on if I'm gonna see this. So Thucydides was a a Greek historian. It's the second on your line there. He wrote the, one of the things he wrote was the Peloponnesian Wars. See, he wrote between 460 and 400 B.C. The first copies we have are 900 A.D. So between the time he wrote and the time we see a copy, is 1,300 years and we have eight existing manuscripts. Right? This is, a, this is what these paleographers do. This is what this science of textual criticism does. Okay, we have Herodotus, okay? Another Greek historian did the works of Western history, wrote around 488, 428 B.C. Earliest copy, 900, another around 1,300 years with eight copies. Then we have Livy or Livy, whatever you you prefer. Livy's Roman history, wrote 59 B.C. to 17. Earliest copy, 8,900, about 900 years. We have 20 copies of that, right? The, The closest thing we have to uh, to the New Testament documents and let me just tell you what the New Testament documents are written between you see right there the last between 40 and 100 AD we have copies at 130 we have full documents at 350 we have fragments at 130 30 to 310 years we have existing 5000 Greek 10,000 Latin and 93 other language 9300 other languages Okay, so the math on that has us at around 24,000 extant existing copies of the New Testament compared to all other works of antiquity. There's no comparison. There's there's no race at all. And so basically, if someone were to walk into this meeting, knows nothing about religion, but all they're doing is want to think, and they think, well, the New Testament has 24,000 documents, and there's no document in any other work of antiquity that comes even close to that, would you believe that there would be validity to that document and I think one would argue with no bias absolutely there's no question they would believe that the closest work of antiquity we have is is the work of Homer Now, Homer sorry wrong Homer Um, Homer's uh, Iliad I, I think I was supposed to read that in high school Um, 643 copies written about 900 B.C., earliest copy 400 B.C., a time span of 500 years. So really none of them compare to the New Testament. It does not mean the Bible is divinely inspired. It just means if you're thinking about this manuscript, there's reason to give it a reading and find out what's in it if you're interested. Look at what uh, F.F. Bruce, F.F. Bruce was a a professor of New Testament criticism at Manchester University. Uh, This is what F.F. Bruce wrote in his textbook, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? He says, And it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. There were others less well disposed who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry and the death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies not to speak willful manipulation of the facts, which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points in the original apostolic preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also as you yourselves know. Had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. The people at the time of the writing of the New Testament were still alive and able to either corroborate or disintegrate the teachings of the apostles of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating, but again, we just got an introduction here, so we're not able to plumb a whole lot more into that depth right now. But look at what the Bible says, on uh, what our manual says on page 14, that Jesus, it it declares that Jesus was fully human. The question is, was he fully human? Okay? And let's just see without, I don't have time to go into a lot of these scriptures. I would encourage you to take your manual with you, take it home with you, take the Bible that we're happy for you to have, hope you take a copy home with you and bring it back with you next week, and just study it. But what is... What does it teach us or tell us that the Bible teaches? That Jesus had a human body. He was fully human. That he got tired, the scripture says. He got hungry. That he had human emotions. Anger, love, sadness. That he had human experiences like you and me. He was tempted. He learned. He worked. He was obedient. But but here's the real question, and here is the rub. Was he more than just a man? Was he more than just a great human? Was he more than just a religious teacher? Well, what does what does the Bible say that Jesus says about himself? Who does Jesus say that Jesus is? And so let's, let's stay in our manual here, page 15, and I'd like you to write just some thoughts down next to these scriptures. John chapter 6, verse 35. Now, in, in the New Testament, we have... You have the four Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll get much more into this in the in in in, in the following weeks. So I, I don't have time to go into all of this. But the Gospel of John, the the number six there is the chapter. Okay, it was not originally written in chapters, but to help the study of the Scripture and be able to find passages more easily, they began to there are Bibles that began to be put together in chapters and verses. So the sixth chapter of John the 35th verse in that chapter. And this is what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. I'm going to emphasize me here because it's very important. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll not hunger. If you believe in me, You'll never thirst. So I'd encourage you, just write something next to that. Jesus says, he, he, he makes a promise to fill our emptiness. Again, he's not talking about our stomach emptiness. He's talking about that nagging emptiness that m- most, if not all of us have felt. Like there's got to be more to this than that. Okay, John 8:12, Eighth chapter, 12 verse of the Gospel of John. Jesus says... I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Direction and purpose. He says, I promise you direction and purpose. Let's look at John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Ah, Then he says this to those around. And I could possibly argue to you tonight to consider this question yourself. Do you believe this? It's a good question. Because when he says, "I'm, I'm, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, on the resurrection and the life, he who, everyone who believes in me, will not perish, but have life. See, he's talking about here, the dash in the line. Everybody's going to die, but what he's saying here is, even when you die physically, you will not die, in terms of relationship with me and continuing in my presence. That's either true or it's not. See, the true or it's not. So when he says that, what he's saying here is, I am offering you line security. (laughs) I'm offering you eternal security that the moment your heart stops, this is what Jesus is promising, the moment your heart stops, you will not, you're going to put off your body, and many of us say amen to that, right? You're going to put off your physical body, but you're going to get something new that's going to last forever. True or not? I'm not trying to convince you that it's true or not, but that that's what it says. Matthew chapter 11, the gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. This is what Matthew writes. He says, Come to me, a lot of me's in here, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Okay, he says, I will give you rest. I will give you, you can write in here, I will give you peace. I will give you a sense of belonging. I will never leave you. You will never be alone. It's interesting, though, in all this, he says, I am, I am, am. He doesn't say my rules are. Keep my rules. Make sure you do everything right and nothing wrong. Make sure you say everything right and nothing. He doesn't say that. He says, I am that for you. You know, a fascinating thing about Christianity, that biblical Christianity, and I'll, and I'll emphasize biblical Christianity because I would argue there's a lot of things called Christianity that are not to be found in the pages of the scriptures. A shock to me when I found these things out. See, but if you look at every other major religion in the world, with all due respect to every other religion in the world, doesn't mean Christianity's right; they're wrong. I'm just telling you. In terms of every religion in the world, you can take Muhammad out of Islam you can take krishna out of whatever krishna is a part of. hinduism you can take buddha out of buddhism and those teachings still stand because they are based on what you do and what you don't do either gets you closer to the god or the goal depending upon how well you did you remove those teachers and the faiths stand In Christianity, if you take Jesus Christ out of his teachings, you have nothing. Because I've just given you at least four examples of what he said, where he said, come to me. He didn't say come to my teaching, though he did want us to receive his teaching, but all of his teaching was based upon what he said and what he would do and whether or not he would come out of the ground three days after history proves to us he was crucified it's interesting to think about so Jesus made some indirect claims to being God Um, it's on page 14 there's the gospel of Mark chapter 2 verse 5 I don't have a, a a slide for this but if you'll just let me just tell you the story let me set the scene for you Jesus is in a little town called Capernaum it had become his hometown. He had begun to receive quite a following because he was doing amazing things. When people do amazing things, people follow them. And this room where Jesus is, this house where Jesus is, became so filled with people because people wanted to be healed. They wanted to hear the teaching. And people also wanted to catch him in heresy. So there are some people present that were anything but friendly toward Jesus and his disciples. And outside, there were four men who had a friend who was paralyzed. They wanted to get him to Jesus, and they were anxious to get him to Jesus. And so what they did was instead of waiting for the crowd to diminish, they took their friend who was in a pallet, he was paralyzed, they took him up through the outside stairs and up on the roof, and they began to remove the roof tiles, and they lowered, and I talk about faith. This is faith. Of course, the paralytic couldn't do anything about it, right? I mean, he was kind of frozen there. Um, and they lowered him in front of Jesus, expecting by faith something was going to happen. And Jesus looks at him and he says to this paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. With that statement, the religious leaders that were in the room in the house also said, whoa, wait one second here. It's one thing to heal people. It's another thing to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can forgive sins but God himself. You saying you, God? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? And the Bible says, and Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, said this to them. What is easier for me to say to this man, take up your pallet and walk or your sins are forgiven. And he said to them then this, so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a term that Jesus used for himself a lot, that the Son of Man has power to forgive sin, I say to you, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the Bible records, it's either true or not, but the Bible records the man immediately stood up, took his bed, the place parted, and out he walked. See, clearly in that makes an indirect claim that he is God. He has the ability to forgive sin. Who has the ability to forgive a transgression against you? You do. So when Jesus is forgiving a transgression, that transgression was against God, and he is saying, I have the power to forgive that sin. See, what was easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and take up your bed and walk? For Jesus, it was easier to say, take up your bed and walk. Because when he says your sins are forgiven, there has to be something that takes place so that that man and these men's sins can be forgiven. There has to be payment for transgression. If you and I were to say to that, that paralytic... Uh, Okay, which would you choose? Get up out of your bed or your sins are forgiven? I'm going with, I read your sins are forgiven. Just You ain't going anywhere. You're still paralyzed as a doorstop, but your sins are forgiven, and who the heck knows? But what does Jesus do? So that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin, I tell you, get up. I'm not just talking smack I've got the power to do what I'm telling you I can do. And so there's indirect claim. There's also direct claim, I've got to hurry. Direct claim to being God. In Exodus chapter 2, chapter 3, Israel has been in captivity in Egypt for hundreds of years. Moses, the deliverer of Egypt, has abdicated his place. He's out in the middle of nowhere. He's in the back of the desert schlepping sheep. There's there's a, suddenly he he sees a bush that's burning, which is not unusual in the desert to see a bush spontaneously combust, but to continue burning, that's something to see. And Moses goes to the bush. Out of the bush, God speaks to him. And God tells Moses, I'm sending you, who have basically been AWOL for the last, what, 40 years, that... You need to go back to Egypt, and I'm going to make you the deliverer of Egypt. And Moses is going, I'm not so sure about this. Who should I say sent me or is sending me? That that means a lot. In what name am I going? In what authority am I going? Why should Pharaoh listen to me? He says, say to him, I am, I am, I am has sent you. And so fast forward, Moses goes, And he says that to him. Well, let's go several hundreds of years. And Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders, again, who did not like him very much. Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'm not going to the description of who they are right now, but he says, your father Abraham, Jesus is telling them, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad they say to him, Whoa, 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 you're not even 50. And you have seen Abraham, he's been dead forever. Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, catch this. This is the way it's constructed in the Greek. I am. How'd they get over? How'd they like that? At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away. Why'd they pick up stones to stone him? Because he's blaspheming. He is calling himself God. Well, not only did they have a choice to make, really, you and I have a choice to make. We have a choice that he was—he either was God or he wasn't. And C.S. Lewis, who uh, I, I alluded to a moment ago, Lewis... Uh, Professor of ancient European literature, I think at Oxford, maybe Cambridge as well, I don't exactly remember, was an atheist who came to faith in Christ. Fascinating read. If you ever want to read something on, uh, of Lewis, his, his work, Mere Christianity, is, is worth the read. It's a fascinating read. I am going to encourage you to do that. But he came up with something called decision tree analysis, where you basically break things down into their simplest components to where it's easier to make a decision. And so, Jesus claimed to be God. If the the scriptures are true, or even if they're not true, the scriptures declare that Jesus claimed to be God. Now, that's either false or true, right? It's either false or true. Well, if it's false, he either knew it was false, or he didn't know it was false. Well, if he knew it, he was a liar, right? Right? He was telling everybody he was the son of God. He was telling everybody he had the power to forgive sins. He was telling everybody that through me you can have peace with God and on the other side of a dash, you'll have life with God forever. Well, if he was a liar, he was also a hypocrite because he's saying, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. And he was telling them a lie. He was telling them a lie. Not only was he a hypocrite, he was a demon because he's saying I am the way to God I'm the way you get to God and he wasn't not only that he's a freaking fool because he died pronouncing that which he knew was a lie well maybe he didn't know it maybe he was right there along with the guy that thinks he's Napoleon and isn't got some kind of complex. If you didn't know it, he was a nut. He was a lunatic. Okay, He was sincerely deluded. Uh, I got introduced to a little video by Bono. I didn't know what a Bono was. I thought it was a chocolate candy. Um, this guy that sings in this band called U2. Is that what it is? U2? Is that how it goes? Is that why it's U2? Here's an interview. Bono. He ta- he's asked the question, who is Jesus?" So the interviewer asks him, "What or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned?" Bono said, "I don't think you're let off easily by saying he was a great thinker or a great philosopher because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's what got him crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God." Said the rock musician and businessman. "So either he either in my view was the son of God or he was nuts." Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. I mean, I mean Charles Manson-type delirium. I love this line. And I find it hard to accept the whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched, and inspired by some nutter, as he calls him. I, I just, I, I, I don't believe that. Then the interviewer says, therefore, it follows that you believe he was divine, and arose physically from the dead. And you pray to the risen Jesus? Bono said, yes. Final question asked, and you believe he made promises which will come true? Yes, I do. Now, Bono's not a theologian by any stretch of the imagination, but it's fascinating the thought that this man had given. Now, if you just turn real quick to your your manual again, I think it's page... um, I'll get there, page 16. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. D- do, you, do you get that? If he's a fruitcake or he's just a, a liar, there, there's nothing good about this man. He would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be insane or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he writes. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God or else he was insane or evil, but, but, Lewis goes on, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that choice open to us. He did not intend to. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. Either Jesus was and is exactly who he said or else he was insane or something worse. And it goes on, Lewis, to Lewis, it seemed clear that he could neither have been insane or evil, and thus he concludes however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So if it's true, he is Lord. And the choice he leaves me is to either accept that or to reject that. See, there, there are, I mean, there are pieces of evidence throughout history that Christianity rises or falls upon. But there is one thing that if it did not happen, if this did not happen, Christianity deserves no quarter no place in any one of our lives see if if Jesus was not raised on that first Easter morning to life Christianity is a farce Christianity is dangerous and we should run as far away from Christianity as possible because all of the Christian faith is dependent upon this man saying not only who he was as he walked the earth, but who he would be at when he was resurrected from the dead and would continue to be when he was ascended into heaven. Like the Apostle Paul saw this, because you remember Paul, maybe you remember that Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was Saul of Tarsus, and Saul of Tarsus was about making sure Christians were shut up, either temporarily in prison or permanently. This is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians, the church in the city of Corinth in Greece. First letter he wrote, 15th chapter, 13 through 15 verse. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if he didn't, Let's turn this place into a restaurant. Because, I, I mean, we do a pretty good job, I think, as a restaurant. Um, and so when we see this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a central part of what we are looking at. It's, it's an interesting. I, the, your table hosts tonight have at your table a, um, an article from the American Medical Association Journal on the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a fascinating historical uh, and scientific treatise on the crucifixion of Christ, and it goes through all the m- multitudes of things that took place to the victim before he was crucified. And the chance of anybody surviving, some didn't even make it to the cross. It was so brutal what took place to the individual before he even got up there. And so you can, you can see that in, in that. And matter of fact, I, th- I think that I've sent the... Uh, I know that I sent to uh, all your table hosts a digital copy of it that they can send to you if you're interested in it as well. So there have been many explanations. Did Jesus really die on the cross? Maybe he just swooned. There's no chance that he just swooned. When you read this, you will see nobody survives crucifixion. I mean, the, the chance of maybe they, go, well, they went to the wrong tomb, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, if he went, they went to the wrong tomb, then the Jews and the Roman soldiers would be happy to show them the right tomb. Um, maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe the disciples who had completely left Jesus decided all of a sudden they got really excited, really bold. They took on at least 10 Roman soldiers, took them out, rolled a 2,000-pound stone away from the, uh, the opening to the, to the tomb, pulled him out, hid him, and declared, hey, everybody, he's raised from the dead, knowing he wasn't, and then every one of them to a man died for it. Now, look, people believe for lie, die for lies believing those lies are true. But I don't know many people that die for a lie believing it's a lie. Maybe the Jewish officials stole the body. Well, if the Jewish officials stole the body, guess what they do the day they start celebrating that Jesus is alive? They present the body. But the argument is still habeas corpus. Show me the body. And no one has come up with the body. And many, many, look, many have tried to explain this away, but couldn't. Uh, Josh McDowell, there's several copies of books tonight. Josh McDowell was, was challenged to, to debunk, to, to, to bunk Christianity, to, to show that it wasn't true. Um, another guy by the name of Frank Morrison, a British journalist, wrote the book called Who, Mo- uh, Who Moved the Stone. He started off to prove that there was no way Jesus was resurrected. He had since become a follower of Christ. Uh, Lee Strobel, we've got some books for you in a couple of weeks, has written several books. He was a Yale graduate uh, uh, in in legal studies, Uh, did not believe at all Christianity, and began to do a journalistic, investigative study into the reasonability of Christianity. And he himself has been all over the world talking about the fact that it, it takes more faith to not believe in Jesus then two, believe in Jesus. So the question is this. If Jesus is God, how does that have any impact on me? We have recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe, Jesus asking his disciples a question. Who do men say that I am? And they gave him a litany of what men were saying that he is. And then he turned to them and made it very personal. And he said to them, who do you say That I am. Now I can hear Jesus saying, Who do you say that I am? echoing through the canyons of time into this room tonight, asking you and me that very question. Not who do you lip service I am, but who do you say and mean and believe that I am? Think about this. Not in just some group setting tonight. Just think about you and Jesus asking you that question. Who do you say that I am? If what the scripture says is true, if Jesus is raised from the dead, I would argue just intellectually Something that deserves some thought—if there actually is something on the other side of your heartbeat, that's going to last heartbeat, that's going to last forever—what determines where I'm going to spend that eternity? You know, the Bible speaks to us this way as it pertains to Jesus. If we do not correctly know who Jesus is. This is what the Bible says. This isn't me. This is what the Bible basically says. If we do not correctly know who Jesus is, we will not really correctly know who we are. Think about that. If we don't know who the Bible says Jesus is, and he is, if he is, we cannot know correctly who we are if in fact... He is the one who created us. If, in fact, He is God, come in the flesh to save us from ourselves. Now, um, next week we're going to do is this. Uh, next, I just can I just encourage you to come back just one more week. Okay, you can come back more than that. But I, next week is the topic: Why did Jesus die? This topic shocked me, right? And if you've not spent much time in the Scripture, it may shock you as well. But again, not, I, some people tell me I'm kind of passionate when I do this. Um, I, I don't know. Obviously, I believe this deeply. doesn't mean it's true. But at least when you leave here, when you leave the Alpha Course, at least you'll know things about Christianity you didn't know before. At least you've opened the Bible, and you'll see what's in the Bible, things you didn't know were there before. And so next week... We'll be in session three. Why did Jesus die? I really want to encourage you to go. We're going to break in just a second. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get back to our tables. But there needs to be a little table etiquette before we go. So um, only one person speaking at a time is going to get really loud in the room. So just, you know, let's try to have one person at a table speaking at a time, not one person in the whole room speaking at a time. Um, uh, Please don't. This is not my fraternity house. Uh, Um... no question is a dumb question. I'm really not sure that's true. Um, but just if you've got a, th- a question in your brain, probably somebody else has got that question in your brain. So, And then um, you don't have to talk. Don't feel like you have to talk. All right? Don't feel any pressure that you have to talk. But I did find a Yahoo article that I thought was really interesting that may encourage you. Um, it says, happy people talk more and with more substance. So, if you don't speak, we're just going to assume that you're really depressed and very shallow. (laughs) So, anyway, thank you so much for being here tonight. Really hope to see you next week. Let's take a quick break. All right. um, Two-door Honda Accord, California Plates. Has the lights on. Two-door Honda Accord, plates on.